Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, in studio today with the new UMass Lowell head coach, Nick Barisi. He took over for Ken Herring in August after the former coach resigned. Barisi spent two seasons as an assistant to Herring, whose exit came after the school authorized in an independent investigation that cleared him from all claims of racial discrimination towards a player. The Riverhawks went 20-35 and 35 last season. Nick, thanks so much for joining us in studio. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a busy couple of months for you in the UMass Lowell program. What's it been like for you to kind of take over that head spot again? You've been a head coach before at Merrimack College, so what's it been like to kind of take the head spot? It's been great. I think it's when I came to Lowell from Merrimack, it was always in the back of my head that I, I felt like I'm a head coach. I wanted to be a head coach. So the opportunity, like you said, was was unique, and it was definitely a busy summer, but I'm excited and happy, and, and UMass Lowell has been a great spot for me, and from the, the day I came on campus, made me feel completely at home and, and supported from a, an administration standpoint and, and the players, and it's just been a really fun couple years here, and I'm just ready to get going and, and excited. Yeah, that is a big opportunity. In America East, I think UMass Lowell has an opportunity to kind of compete with the mains and some of those teams that are established as contenders every year. How do you how do you plan to kind of put your own stamp on the program? I, anytime you take over a head coaching position, you kind of are going to do things a little bit differently than the person before you. Yeah, and, and like you said, I, I feel like Lowell's in a position where we can definitely compete for conference championships right away. And just the resources that we have and the facility and, and all the things are in place for us to be really successful. I think what I would do differently or not even differently, but what is unique to how I would be as a coach is from a, a culture standpoint, I, I'm pretty cut and dry. I, I set the standards and, and tell my guys what the expectations are. And, and then I approach them and talk to them like they're grown adults and either, you know, you meet the expectations and the standards and, and we'll be good or you don't. And um, you just really won't be a part of what we're trying to do moving forward, whether it's on the field or, or in the clubhouse. So the benefit for me is with the players that we've had here and that, that nucleus, we have a lot of guys that completely buy into what we're trying to do from, from that culture standpoint. And we just have so much veteran leadership and, and guys that, even in their sophomore year, got a lot of meaningful innings and, and at-bats and things like that as true freshmen or sophomores. So they've been able to really solidify that veteran leadership that we, we need to, to move forward. Yeah, and you had mentioned it being a really unique uh, opportunity, and it is unique in that you were on the staff the last two years, and it seems like in some ways, and it's difficult to tell from outside the program if it was a fractured team or just a couple of guys who had a problem with the head coach. What did you do after you took over to kind of address that situation with the team? I think to say it's a fractured team is it would just not be accurate. I think the guys are definitely together, and we're all trying to move in the same direction. So from that standpoint, there wasn't really anything difficult for me stepping in. It was guys, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Let's move forward. And, and everybody was completely bought in on that. So there definitely wasn't a fracture or anything like that. Part of it that made it even more seamless was being able to keep two of the other coaches that were on staff, Joe Consul Magno and Drew Goulden, who, who were with us last year and, and keeping them around. And then obviously bringing in a new coach and Cody Kaufman has, has been awesome. But that foundation has, has been laid and, and we're in a position now where we really didn't skip a beat. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And 
So you didn't lose any recruits or anything like that through the process? So we lost one player, Jacob Humphrey, ended up transferring to Vanderbilt, and that's a phenomenal opportunity for him. And, right. and when to his credit, he was super transparent about the whole process and certainly wish him nothing but the best of luck. But I think for us with recruiting, there were some players that were definitely just a little anxious about how is this going to affect my recruiting and my status. And those are pretty quick conversations that guys, we, myself and especially Coach Consul Magno, we had been a part of that recruiting process and recruiting a lot of these kids. So what had been promised them or, or what we envisioned for them, none of that changed. And I think that put a lot of guys' minds at ease. And then we were able to really move quickly with the 2025 recruiting class and, and finishing up the 2024 recruiting class. Because again, myself and Joe, Consul Magno, had, had such a, a huge part in that and being on the road and identifying a lot of those players and getting them on campus. And so a lot of those guys had already had relationships with us. So um, we were in a really good spot with that. Yeah, that helps. That that That's the way the content, continuity definitely helps is you're talking to the same coaches that are still there for these recruits. I mean, they, they've they've established a relationship with you and the other assistant coaches. So that's good. And then, I, like I mentioned in the intro, Coach Herring was cleared of the investigation about racial discrimination, and then he resigned after that, which was, to me, that timing seemed a little different. Were you aware that he was kind of looking or leaning in that direction at the end of that investigation? I think things were pretty, kept pretty close to the vest with, with everybody, and it was a situation for me where I knew for the best interest of myself and, and just my job, I, I needed to not even really concern myself with it. And whatever Coach Herring decided to do for the best interest of him and his family, that's completely his choice, and I understand it. And from the program standpoint, I was just trying to make sure that we were in a good position to to hit the ground running and compete for a conference championship. So I never really got too invested in it because it was, one, it was – I wasn't really involved in any of it, and it was just a situation where things were really kept really tight and close, and and so I just kind of, not to say stayed above the fray, but just kind of went about my business and did my job, and just, (laughs) it was easy for me in the summer because it's a big recruiting time, so... I just found myself on the road recruiting a lot and, and just business as usual. Yeah, that, that does make it easier when you're kind of just not involved in it. I had mentioned the record. So 2030 and five last season, 28 and 30 in 2022. So that was a close to 500 season. But since the move to Division One, I, I know UMass Lowell has been below 500 most of the time, if not all of the seasons. What can you do to kind of take that step to make your make the program a, a competitive America East contender against the the mains of the teams that are there every year? I think when you look at the last two years, which is what I can speak to because I was there, I think our biggest areas of need were specifically pitching depth. I just we'd get into situations in the game at the end of the game or in the middle parts of the game trying to bridge gaps from our starters to our bullpen, and and it would almost be like throwing darts at a dartboard. Who, who are we going to bring in this game? And they, they had a great time last outing. Are they going to do the same thing this time? And it became just kind of difficult to navigate that. So we worked really hard this summer through the transfer portal with, with some really quality arms we feel like we've brought in to, to shore up that pitching depth. I think the other part of it too is defensively we just had to get better. And that is recruiting and, again, depth bringing in more guys, uh, specifically in the outfield. I think we're really fortunate to have some veteran guys in the middle of the infield and even on the corner spots. But for us in the outfield, we knew we had to to, to bring some guys in and, and just shore up that defensive part of it. And I think that's pretty 
cut and dry, right? When you talk about really successful teams, they pitch well and they play defense. And right. those were two things that kind of held us back a little bit for sure. I think offensively we've always been in a really good place and, you know, being able to score runs and, and put pressure on the other team and their defense. And we just haven't been as successful fielding the ball and throwing the ball over the plate and getting guys out. Yeah. Um, and what about general um, pro- program building philosophy? Like now it's so different with, I like, I talked to coach Penders um, a year or two ago and he was just saying he learned when they were playing in the American athletic conference um he couldn't win with freshmen and it was just too hard and he he's been going heavy on the transfer portal the last couple of years northeastern i think think has taken a little bit of a deeper dive in the transfer portal umass i just saw had like nine Mm -hmm. transfers this year how do you how do you see yourself building the program you said you got some transfers in here this year to provide a little more experience and some guys who have some college success under their belts is that what do you think that'll be like a one-off to build depth or do you think you'll be in the transfer portal every year I think it would be naive to think that we can't utilize the transfer portal right I I don't want to go completely in the other side of the spectrum and sit here and say well we're going to be a four-year program where we take guys out of high school and develop them I think the transfer portal is is a tool and something that we have to use if we want to be successful And, and we have for me personally I've always felt like from a culture standpoint and from a, a roster depth and competition standpoint, I've had success with more of that four-year model, right? Where we take a kid out of high school, we develop them, we build those relationships. And what I always tell recruits and, and what we tell players all the time is when you step foot on campus, I, I'll never promise a recruit like, hey, I think you're going to come in freshman year and, and be in our rotation. I think you're going to come in freshman year in red shirt and then sophomore year you'll get significant innings. And by the time you're a junior, year, you're a junior, you'll be an everyday starter. That's not really how I approach it. We try to recruit guys that we feel are impact players can come in day one and, and play right away. Mm-hmm. I think recruits love to hear that in, in the process. The struggle then becomes when you're a junior and a senior senior, are you still willing to compete for your spot every day and have a guy that we just brought in that's younger that's trying to take your job, and are you okay with that level of competition? And I think, again, from the makeup of our team and culture and competition throughout that roster, that to me is is the way to be successful. So I like the four-year plan. I like the guys that come out of high school. And then, you know, you find what are the really good fits out of the portal to, to plug those holes that you have. And, like, I know right now – we're going to lose our starting shortstop the last three years after this year. He's going to move on and be done with college baseball. We're going to have to go into the portal to try to fill some depth at at the middle of our infield. So um, if we try to do that with just a a true freshman, that's not impossible, but it's, it's definitely a risky endeavor where you're, you're asking, you know, a 17, 18, maybe 19 year old kid to come in and and play shortstop at the division one level every day, which those guys are few and far between. Yeah, you, you that is difficult to put a guy in that spot, a 19-year-old, and say, hey, you're in the American East Conference Division One. now you're, you're shortstop playing 50 games a year. That's difficult. In terms of recruiting, we do hear from, and I like that point on the transfer portal too, I think it's a good advantage for an in-state university too because like you look at it's Mark Willie, I think, went to Michigan. They changed the staff at Michigan. Now he's going to UMass. But it's probably going to be less expensive, even if he was getting money at Michigan to go in state now at UMass. So, like, it is a nice advantage for a state university. But we do hear from a lot of people looking for that four-year plan, the recruits, the juniors in high school, the sophomores in high school that want to get recruited. They want to have a chance to play 
and they want to stay there. The idea is that you're going to go there for at least three years, maybe four. Where? So you said you were on the road this summer. Where are you looking to find guys? Like for those high school players that are looking to get recruited at UMass Lowell, what's the best? Is it going to camps on campus or what's the best way to do it? You kind of put everything together, right? Yeah. So f- for sure, because we're a state school in Massachusetts, we want to be great in our backyard. We want to do a phenomenal job of recruiting the best players in this area. And I think we can, again, because of the facilities, the academic profile of the school, what we can offer from a financial standpoint, being an in-state kid. So we really want to make sure we're doing our due diligence in Massachusetts. And there's also just, especially when you talk about the entire state, but even you talk about like east of 495, there's just so many good players in this area and a lot of talent to choose from. So we always try to make sure, like we spend a lot of time in Northborough and bouncing around between high school and travel ball games in this area. But then we do branch out, absolutely. We want to make sure we're getting down to New Jersey and New York and the rest of New England. And then we do, we have team camps, we have prospect camps, which are a huge tool for us because now it's, we get an opportunity to see guys really up close and they have an opportunity to play on our field at our campus. So when you put all those things together, that really defines our recruiting philosophy, I guess you would say. But first and foremost, we want to be, and I know we're competing with great schools. When you talk about schools like Northeastern and, and like you said, UConn, but Bryant, BC, UMass Amherst, all these schools that are in our our region and most of them are in our state it's we know we have to be competitive and and provide an opportunity and experience that's going to get guys here yeah in terms of what was i just going to ask you about it was oh the facilities you had mentioned the facilities being top notch so the home stadium is where the little spinners used to play lasher park Mm -hmm. which is that's minor league facility it's really nice i think what was it a year or two ago umass lowell bought it from the city of lowell because i think the locker rooms needed they were kind of in disrepair needed needed to be repaired at least or renovated where does that stand now? Uh, what What is the uh, kind of your outlook on facilities and whether they need improvement? I think there's a ton of potential. And, and again, kind of way above my pay grade as to why we were able to purchase the stadium or what happened behind closed doors. But we were super fortunate fortunate to have that opportunity, got a chance to buy the Lasher, and the school has been pretty clear right away that we want to make this a, a really important and beautiful part of East Campus, which is where the stadium's located. And not for baseball, it's going to benefit for sure, but the school obviously has an opportunity to use that space for, for other events throughout the summer or the spring or whatever they want to do. So I know that that's a, a real focal point for the college moving forward, and, and they want to make sure that it's a, a great facility. And so, again, the support that I've received from administration that we've gotten from people around campus about the plans and what they want to do with it and how they want it to look is has been awesome. And it's something where I... I truly do. I, I pinch myself every day that I walk out of my office and I get to go out to that stadium and the, the field is, is beautiful. It's in great shape and they've done an incredible job. Yeah, it is a really nice place. I, I miss going to those spinners games, but I was, I've been wondering if they're going to do more in the summer, like summer collegiate league or something like that. Like that would be a cool idea to have a, a summer collegiate league team there. I would love it, especially now with the transfer portal. Yeah. Because like for us this summer, when we got a couple of the, the new pitchers that we, we, we looked at for transferring, it was going to Futures games or any CBL games. or So it would be beneficial for us to have something right there. And But I also think for the community, I know the spinners were, were huge in Lowell, and they got a great turnout, and I, I think people would really embrace and, and buy into that summer ball culture. And I've been a part of it. I coached in the Futures League for a couple of years, and it really is a, a pretty cool experience and something I think the city and and the school could really get behind. 
Yeah, I think in that like 2003, 2004, when the, everybody was all over the Red Sox back then and they were hadn't won the World Series yet, I think they used to sell out spinners games like yeah. almost every night. Um, so the potential is there, but you know it, it helps obviously when the big league club is doing well and people want to see the prospects. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful facility. I hope that um, the administration does what they say they're going to do with it. What else? So you played baseball at UMass or UMaine. Right. No, I played at St. Anselm College. Oh, that's right. Okay, yeah. And and then you have experience coaching in the Cape League as well as a couple of summer collegiate So I was, never, I was never in the Cape League. So no. I went, I did the Futures League in, oh, okay. for Wachusett, the Dirt Dogs, who don't even exist anymore. So right, I was yeah. there for two years. And I was I was just really fortunate and lucky in, in terms of my coaching career. Just I got a, a great start with Jim Martin at Merrimack. He's now the associate head coach at Stony Brook and was in a position to take over at Merrimack and then obviously transitioned to where I'm at now. But so, yeah, I've, I've had a few stops on the way, but also I, I know I'm, I'm pretty fortunate. I haven't had as many stops as a lot of guys in this business. And uh, it's been a, a good opportunity for me to kind of plant my roots and, and get settled and, and be in a place for a long time. Yeah, you're still a rel- relatively young uh, D1 coach. This is your second step. What did you learn from your experience at Merrimack, uh, making that uh, similar to UMass Lowell, and that you made the transition from D two to D one uh, while you were there? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I noticed that first year, and I think not to keep harping on the transfer portal, I think we're starting to see this now with the portal is that gap between Division three, Division two, and and you know the mid major Division one schools is is not as big as people think, mm-hmm. and when we made that first year jump and we opened up at Merrimack with Oral Roberts and we split that series and then we beat Michigan State three out of four and then we ended up beating Wofford one time and all of a sudden it's like we're above 500 in our first year division one at a conference and and we felt pretty good and then obviously COVID happened and the season got shut down Um, but even that second year when we got into conference play and really from from the jump knew okay we can hang around here we belong here and I think in the clubhouse, in the four walls of the locker room, the players knew that. We knew that as coaches. But, uh, you know, it was a lot of people, I think, were, were pretty surprised by that early on. Um, but for us, it was just kind of, we, we knew. Like, when, when we recruited in, in the Northeast 10 in Division Two, we were going up against a lot of the same schools that are in our conference now, in, in mm-hmm. America East and or the NEC or, or a lot of those schools. So it wasn't super surprising for anybody in the program, but it was just nice to be able to prove that, we are in a position where, yeah, we were Division Two, but we still have really good, talented players, and, and we can compete at the Division One level. And it's the same thing, right? Like, we have three transfer arms right now, and two are from Division Three, and one's from Division Two, and I, I feel great about them. I think they're all going to be huge contributors for us, and had a lot of success at their level, and I think they're going to have success for us. You had mentioned earlier you always had kind of aspired to come back into a head coaching position. I felt like this summer in particular, there was a lot of transition, I guess, in New England mm-hmm. coaching. BC, obviously, that position opened up. Northeastern, like it was, I wasn't sure if Coach Glavin was going to take one of those other job, Penn State or BC or anything like that. He didn't know if that was going to open up. Coach Loazzo at Southern New Hampshire, who you've actually, right after your Merrimack experience, mm-hmm. you were on his staff for the fall season at least. Did you ever get the sense like, hey, this is the summer to, to find one of those head coaching gigs with all, all the moving pieces? A little bit. Every summer, you, you always hear a lot of different things, and, and everybody talks, and there's a million rumors, and you never know how it's going to actually shake out. But 
yes and no, because at Lowell, I felt at home and it was a great spot for my family and I loved the school and the program. So I always you keep your ear to the ground and, and you might hear things and opportunities that would pop up. But at the same time, I was like, well, I'm really happy at Lowell and I want to see if I can try to make this work because I, I could see myself here for a really long time. So I think every summer you go into it not knowing exactly how it's going to shake out, but it all ended up working out as it as it typically does. So, but yeah, this summer was was crazy for sure. There was a lot of turnover in New England, and but all for the better. It's Coach Loazzo and, and myself. I consider him a good friend, and I'm super happy for him. And that's a great opportunity for him after what he was able to build at Southern New Hampshire, and, and he obviously helped me out in my transition. So, uh, it was definitely an exciting summer. Yeah. Um, so fall season on a college campus, it'd be interesting to hear what that looks like for you as a first year coach and what it looks like for players too. Cause I think a lot of incoming freshmen want to know how am I going to balance that with trying to figure out the academic piece and everything like that. You got transfers coming in from other schools competing for spots. You have freshmen competing for spots. So what does it look like so far and what's kind of the, the fall plan over the next month or two? I think the fall is definitely when you get the, the growing pains and guys start to figure stuff out, the, the younger guys. And it's, we always talk about that time management piece, right? When you're in high school, the bell rings, you go from class to class to class, and it's not like that at a college campus. And in and, and fall ball for us, we have guys that take class all morning, and then we have practice in the early afternoon, and then they have night classes. And kind of managing that type of schedule is, is can be overwhelming at times for guys. And then you get to mix in, obviously, going to the weight room and, and the training room and treatment and, and eating and having a social life. Like, all that stuff matters. Yeah. So I think the guys figuring out that balance is important and and the fall is a a huge time for that for us from a a schedule practice standpoint we we basically treat it similar to the spring we're practicing just about every day and this is when we do a lot of the install stuff so you put in the plays you want to run and the philosophies you want to implement and you also start the competition piece so if i want to talk about having a roster where true freshmen can come in and compete for roles right away we have to give them that that opportunity so whether it's on drill work or through inner squads or stuff like that, this is really when guys start to establish their role on the team and we create that competitive environment. Yeah, we're actually working on a kind of a package of how to, how do freshmen get on the field at the D1 level right away. It's, it seems like it's so hard. you get these big-time guys who are state champions, player of the year, that stuff, and then they have a hard time getting on the field. Is there anything you see that high school guys could be doing more to prepare themselves when they get on campus in September of their freshman year? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. And it's through no fault of their own, right? It's This is just you get to a different level of baseball and things are, are tough. And yeah. it, it, the game moves faster. And like one of the biggest things we see, especially for pitchers, is you know you have guys that have a ton of success in high school and they, they dominate their seasons and, and they can throw the ball. That's great but they have no concept of how to hold a runner, how to be quick to the plate, how to pick guys off, stuff like that. And that's such a huge piece of our of our game at this level. And that, I, th- I think from a pitching-specific standpoint, that keeps so many guys off the field. Because yeah. if you can't hold runners and control the running game, and we're lucky, we have a guy like Ryan Proto, who's the best catch-and-throw guy in the conference, in my opinion. If guys are stealing bases off us, it's because of the pitchers. And right. so trying to get guys to be great at that and, and understand exactly how to do it, I think that is a huge obstacle for them coming in. From an offensive standpoint, it's just you're going to see much better pitching at this level and trying to get guys used to that. Like we, I think we had some younger guys a little 
surprised that Coach Koff throws a great BP and it's firm and straight and the velo is, it catches some guys by surprise at this level because you're going to see that. You're going to see 90-92 pretty much every day. So offensive players just getting used to that. And then the bat off the ball from a defensive standpoint. If you're playing third base in high school, it's just, it's going to come off the bat different at this level. Same thing with outfielders. It's why your jumps and your footwork is that much more important, but it's, it's all those little things. It's not even the tools and the ability to, to swing or throw or do anything like that. It's, it's just the speed at which this game moves at the college level is, is so much higher. Yeah. The physicality, you hear co- uh, coaches say that too. Like, And I think now guys lift more in high school. Like 20 years ago, you'd get to your freshman year of college and you'd just be sore all the time because it was your first time lifting. And I, th- I feel like now guys are lifting a little bit more in high school, but still you get to that college game and it's just a lot more physical. Yeah, and, and guys take it more seriously. So like coming yeah. out of high school, I was 160 pounds. Right. And it, it just I was a, a, a child compared to what I finished at by my senior year. And now you're right. Like you see kids come in and day one of testing, they're deadlifting 400 plus pounds and doing all these things in a high school I didn't even think about. Right. So, and that's great. That's awesome for us and beneficial. But yeah, the physicality piece of it where I think now it's, you get to the college level and, and we're like, we're fortunate at Lowell. We have a great strength coach and Ryan Smack and we have a refueling station and, and things like that where, okay, like it's not just about getting in the weight room three, four times a week. It's about what you're putting into your body and getting the right calories in and that physicality piece that you talked about where it's we have guys that come in freshman year and 160, 170 pounds, and all of a sudden by their sophomore year they're pushing 200 pounds. And that's just, I think, when you're in high school and if you play multiple sports or you're just the amount of responsibility you can put towards being physical and getting bigger and stronger is not as as high as it can be in college. Hmm. Do you have any rivalries with these the America East coaches? I know Nick Durba has been on the podcast. Guys like that seem like very competitive, very they want to win. Have you established those yet? Because Merrimack is not in the America East, so it's kind of a, a new conference for you as a head coach at least. Yeah, I mean, I, when you talk about rivalries, it's it's always like against the better teams, right? So, of course, <laughs> like I love playing Maine, and, and Nick does an, an incredible job, and they've been really successful up there, And but you love playing them, and right. you love the opportunity to try to beat them and compete against them. And I know... It, Coach Klosterman at Brian had his first year in, in our conference last season, and he's going to be another guy. Like, Brian is always going to be really good, and Binghamton has a great program. Up and down the, the, the conference, there's really good teams. Um, I think just from the last couple years and who we've played in the playoffs in the tournament, Maine for sure is someone that the guys always get up for. Binghamton, same deal. Guys always get up for it. And it's not – it's just that competitive juice, right, where you want to play the best and beat the best and – kind of knock the guy off the hill. So we know Maine represented our conference last season and great for them. That's awesome. We just want an opportunity to compete against them and hopefully at the end of the season be player longer than they are. So, um, but as far as like the coaches and the rivalries, like it's, it's hard to manufacture any of that stuff. Like Nick Durb is a great guy and, and coach Klosterman. Again, I can go up and down the conference and talk about all those coaches, but they're, it's, it's a great group. It's a great group of coaches. I think they all look out for one another and support each other, which is awesome. And then, yeah, I mean, at a conference, like, yeah, it's, it's not in conference, but, like, for Merrimack, for me, obviously, haven't been there. And, and knowing some of those guys, like, that's a game that personally I get up for. And you play a team like Northeastern, who's had so much success and so much tradition, same thing. Like, you want to show recruits, like, if you are choosing between Northeastern and UMass Lowell and you, you've seen all the success that Northeastern's had the last couple of years. Well, now this is what UMass Lowell's been able to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is. A, it's amazing that you've had a, an opportunity to be the head coach at a D1 level 
School's like 10, it's not even 10 miles apart, probably Lowell and Merrimack. Yeah, let's just say it's, it's, I just moved across the river. That's yeah, right. it's crazy. Well, that's great. I'm looking forward to I was saying before this, I, I live in Lowell, so I'm excited for the program and excited to get out and see you guys in the spring or maybe even this fall. Like once you guys, you have a few scrimmages at home. Yeah. So we're playing Northeastern and then there's a, a junior Canadian team that comes down and kind of tours and plays us Northeastern BC. So we're going to, we're going to play them as well, but it should be a fun fall. Yeah. Oh, nice. All right, well, so I, I don't know if you're aware we do the three-up, three-down segment on every show. It's just general interest baseball stuff with our producer, David Yaz. Are you up for that? Absolutely. All right, David, take it from here. Dan, I don't, I don't know if you sold three-up, three-down with the fanfare that it deserves. Three-up, three-down. <laughs> so, yes, three questions are guest and our host have not seen these questions at all. So, Coach... You're the guest. You get to go first. Okay. Question is, who is or was your favorite Major League Baseball player who was not an all-star but simply a favorite of yours for whatever reason? Oh, man. So me and my buddies, we used to always talk about this, like not obscure players but just guys that we really loved. And I don't know why this – it's probably – I don't even know how many people are going to know this name. For whatever reason – I was obsessed with this guy, Bryant Nelson, who played in the American League East for a while. And I just, he was like the most versatile player ever. And I felt like every time I would watch him, he'd do really well. So me and one of my good friends used to always joke about how I was a huge Bryant Nelson fan. <laughs> was but he, was he, what position did he play? Like, he, everywhere. But oh, he, like uh, utility player. Yeah. yeah. It was hard as a Red Sox fan because there were so many good <laughs> players that were all-stars. So Yeah, if you were older like me, you'd have plenty to choose from, trust me. I remember rooting for Jack Brohammer, Larry Wolf, and... Jim Dwyer, to name a few obscure. <laughs> anyway, Dan, uh, so you've my, had a chance to think about this guy. Yeah, my um, well, I grew up a Philadelphia Phillies fan, and um, when I was about four or five years old, they traded for Von Hayes. I don't know if that name oh, rings yeah. a bell. So he's like six six, skinny. I want he was probably like one hundred eighty pounds or something like that. But he played first base. And I got so excited after the trade. I'm reading about it in the newspaper, and I'm like, this guy is going to be a stud. And so it turned – I love the guy. I don't think he was ever an all-star. He, did, he wasn't very good for the Phillies. And one of the first games I ever went to, like he'd hit like 250 as a first baseman, maybe 15 home runs or something like that. So not great. And the Phillies gave up a lot uh, – a few prospects I wanna, for him. Yeah, I want to say I do remember that they gave up a King's Ransom. Like yes. It was like a, a five-for-one trade or something to yeah. get Von Hayes. And so they, he couldn't win. No, you know, but so. I like didn't know the specifics of the trade. I was still only like five or six. So I was just like, hey, they got another player. And I loved him. And then one of the first games I went to, um, they announced Von Hayes, like batting third, Von Hayes. He gets booed. And I'm like, what is, what is everyone booing this guy for? He's <laughs> oh, going to no. be awesome. But uh, yeah, so I, I have a totally warped perception of him, but he was my favorite non-all-star. The three-up, three-down research department has determined that Von Hayes was acquired by the Phillies from the Indians for Manny Trio, George Vukovic, Julio Franco, Oof. Jerry Willard, and Jay Baller. And the trade inspired the nickname Five for One coined by Pete Rose. Hey. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Poor Von Hayes. I'm glad you rooted for him. <laughs> yeah. All right. Dan, you get to go first on this one. When baseball employed the designated hitter, were you... Pro or con- I'm sorry. When baseball was split on the designated hitter, I guess AL NL. Were you pro or con? And the larger question is: Is the DH here to stay? I think yes, the DH is here to stay. I was con because, like I said, I grew up a Phillies fan, National League Baseball. I kind of like the idea of pitchers getting to the bottom of the order, working their way through the set. Usually, it was like. The seven hitter was your best defensive outfielder. Eight was your shortstop who was hitting like 210. And then the pitcher, 
the game went faster. I kind of like the strategy of like, don't ever walk the pitcher, like get mm. through the nine and start the in- next inning with the one hitter. Yeah, so that, like that was that was the walk the pitcher was a myth that, yeah. that it was effective at it. Oh no, yeah, that, that was like a freakonomics thing. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, but it was um, more strategy for sure. Yeah, more strategy. Uh, but I do think it is here to stay, and I think you know it's more exciting probably to watch a designated hitter hit than a pitcher get up there and then put the jacket on on first base. That was just weird. <laughs> That was weird. Yeah, uh, coach, your thoughts on the DH? I mean, I was a pitcher. I always wanted to hit. So, but I, I also understand the DH. I think is definitely here to stay, and it's it's just created more opportunities for guys at the professional level. And even from a coaching manager standpoint, I think it's a little bit more interesting to not have the DH. So, in a perfect world, I, I would be anti DH, but I'm I'm not opposed to it and uh, i'm pretty confident it's, it's here to stay for sure i think so yeah on my high school team the coach occasionally would would dh but but for the right fielder and i always felt bad for that guy yeah <laughs> but he, he was in there for a reason he was a good fielder but but sorry the pitcher's gonna hit final question and we'll start with you coach what is the most memorable home run you've ever witnessed in person oh boy and that could be major league or really any level. Well, this isn't a, a positive thing for me, but I remember it. And it's burned in my brain. When I was a true freshman playing against St. Leo University, a kid hit. I came in out of the bullpen and with the bases loaded. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm a mid-80s lefty. Like, I'm just going to throw a fastball by this guy. And he hit it probably about 410 feet over oh, the center field fence. And it was a grand slam. And that was my introduction to college baseball. And... They took me out of the game after that, and St. Leo has this tradition where they play the Gap Band song, You Drop the Bomb on Me. After they, <laughs> so I heard that on loop for about three minutes. So never, ever forget that, ever. So again, not a good one, but that's definitely the home run I remember the most. Aluminum bats, I, I assume? It was wood, which made it even worse. No, sorry. I was trying to get you off the hook there. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Dan, your thoughts? I would go a Red Sox game. Um, so when I was right out of college, I was living in Cambridge and... My favorite thing to do back then was go to a midweek afternoon baseball game. So it was like a one o'clock game on a Tuesday or Wednesday. And it was like April, one of those like 85 degree days in April where it's just you're like, oh, yes, it's baseball season. This is great. I was sitting in the bleachers and Red Sox were trailing the whole game. David Ortiz ends up hitting a walk off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning and then everybody just flows out of the stadium and is partying and you know all the restaurants and bars around it it was just a great day but yeah that was a fun home run i think i went to at least two walk-off david ortiz home runs at fenway there were many yeah he hit a million of them but uh i was was at my most memorable might be not that you guys asked thanks a lot but my my mind would probably be uh, my dad was a big manny ramirez fan my dad loved any player who had like a beautiful swing he just he would marvel he would go look at that swing look at that swing so I was able to uh, bring my dad to playoff game in 07, and it was against Anaheim. But you'll remember it because it was the one that ended with Manny hitting a just a majestic home run over the over – the, and it was that one where he hit it, and a split second later he raises his arms because mm. everyone in the ballpark knew it was gone. You yeah. know, usually there's that kind of anticipation, like, is it going to make it? This one was bang. So that one's for you, Dad. Very good. You both have... Oh, wait. Did I ask? Yes, I asked you both that question. Mm -hmm. As a special prize, Coach, we have uh, a poem written about you in the style of Casey by the Bat. In full disclosure, this this poem was written by a robot, so take it for what it's worth. I'm going to put on my Ken Burns narrator voice for this. In Lowell's Realm by Lelasher's Grace, Coach Nick led the Riverhawks chase. 
From Merrimack's glory to Lowell's shore, he aimed to inspire, teach, and more. Once a player at St. Anselm's Domain, now a coach with passion's flame. With each pitch, with every swing, he kindled dreams, made victories sing. Through challenges, they'd stand tall. Nick's mission clear, he'd give his all. Their tale in baseball's grasp, they'd find a path to triumph in heart and mind. Thank you. That's I like great. it. I like that one. America East Championship right. is coming. Yep. <laughs> All Back right. To you, Dan. Yep. Thank you, David. Thanks to Nick Barisi for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.